Skull Rock Podcast is brought to you by the generosity of the following companies. Sure, sound extraordinary. To podcasters, recording musicians, and streamers who are looking for studio quality audio at home or on the road, the Sure MV7 Podcast Kit is a premium all-in-one solution inspired by the legendary Shure SM7B and is designed to address the versatility required by modern creators. For more on the Shure MV7 podcast kit, visit shure.com, S-H-U-R-E.com, or click the link in our show notes. Shure, sound extraordinary. And by The Old Mill Press, publishing beautifully crafted books that illuminate our world. To learn more, visit theoldmillpress.com. And by listeners like you. Hey, this is artist Sue Blanchard, and you're listening to the Skull Rock Podcast. Skull Rock Podcast, talking all things Disney, with your hosts, L. John Goh and Dave Bossert. Welcome to Skull Rock Podcast, the show about all things Disney and pop culture. Every single week, we take you behind the scenes of some of your favorite Disney films, theme park attractions, performances, books, music, as well as what's streaming in theaters and what's going on in the universe of entertainment. And I said, what's streaming in theaters? It's what's streaming and what's in theaters. <laughs> Sometimes the two are the same. Uh, I'm Al John Go, musician and longtime Disney, Marvel, Star Wars, and pop culture fan. And you can email me, Aljon, A-L-J-O-N, at SkullRockPodcast.com. And I'm Dave Bossard, artist, filmmaker, author, and welcome to the Skull Rock Podcast. If you love Disney and pop culture, please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. You can also like and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. You can also email me at Dave at SkullRockPodcast.com. And uh, Al John, here we go. We've got animation legend Willie Ito, part two Ah, of our, our interview with him. Uh, and I have to tell you, um, I'm looking forward to this and I got a lot of messages or I saw a lot of notes on Facebook of people saying they couldn't wait for part two. They love part one. Uh, they think Willie is a, you know, a legend, a gem, uh, you know, just, uh, um, you know, really nice comments, uh, from people, uh, about this, uh, first, the first part we dropped last week. So I'm looking forward to dropping part two this week. And uh, we also uh, got other, you know, I got a nice email I'll read to you in a moment. But how are you? Doing great, Dave. You know, it is springtime, at least seemingly. I think uh, we we may have escaped the last bit of the winter, if you will. And uh, looking forward to, you know, just getting out there and soaking up some sun when we can. So. I'm, I'm I can't wait that. for I can't wait for it to warm up, Al John. It's yeah. there's been such a stretch of cold weather out here in Los Angeles and yes. rain. You know, we've had well over 20 inches of rain uh, this season since the beginning of the year. Well, that's I, I, I mean, we needed it. We needed it. But you know something? It's like we don't need it all at once. <laughs> nice if it was spread, spread out. out a little bit, please. Yeah. I know because you guys are, you know, you're, you're forest forest fire central. You know, you got to be able to spread it out so it's just not so dry, you know. So exactly. Well, I'm glad you got the rain. It is nice to kind of, you know, wash some things away as we move into the spring. And it's also great that you happen to have some uh, listener comments or emails, right? Well, you know, I, th- this email came in to both of us. It, it starts out, dear Dave and Al John. Okay. Just wanted to express my gratitude for the Skull Rock podcast. I learned so much and you have some fascinating guests. 
Last month, I met Tanya, and he's talking about Tanya McKnight, at Walt's Barn, but I knew very little about her other than that she had something to do with the wallpaper in the Haunted Mansion. (laughs) If I knew then what I know now, I would have sat down and talked with her for an extended period of time. This makes me want to double my efforts to get back there. Alas, I live in Salt Lake City area, so doing so is not so easy. Thanks again, Michael, in Utah. Yay. And I, and I have to say, what a great note. And Tanya McKnight is fantastic. We enjoyed having her on. We had a multi-part interview with her. Lovely lady. Lovely lady. And you can meet her in person if you go to Walt's Barn, which is open on the third Sunday of every month down there in Griffith Park uh, near Traveltown. That's great. She is such a delight and she shares so much uh, in her podcast. So go back and check it out. I think we have like a two parter uh, for Tanya. Oh yeah, uh, absolutely. So go back and check it out. Yeah. And uh, it's always great hearing from our listeners. Uh, We, we really do enjoy it. And, you know, if you drop us a note, um, we will read you, read it out, uh, out a uh, little, 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 oh boy, <laughs> I'm telling you, turn these clocks back. Oh, no <laughs> kidding. Still right. waking oh. Up. All right. Oh. Uh, so I said, uh, if you send us those emails, we will read them out loud. There you go. On the Skull Rock podcast. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Send it over, please. Time now for what we saw this week, Dave. You've got some reviews. You got a, you saw a lot of cool things this week. I, you know, I did. It was kind of uh, I, I had a very busy week, but I managed to squeeze a lot of uh, content consumption in uh, in the evenings and uh, uh, on the weekend. Uh, well, first off, I went to the movies and I saw Woody Harrelson in uh, his latest movie, Champions. Mm-hmm. And I have to tell you, I loved this movie. Uh, I really, really loved it. Uh, I think, you know, uh, it's so nice and refreshing uh, to see uh, Woody uh, playing uh, a good character, not some like psycho murderer or something or hitman or whatever you want to call it. That's right. Uh, But uh, really uh, an amazing uh, film, I thought. Uh, And I'll just give you the synopsis real quick. A former minor league basketball coach receives a court order to manage a team of players with intellectual disabilities. Despite his doubts, he soon realizes that together they can go further than they ever imagined. You know, and this is really just a very heartwarming film, I have to tell you. Uh, It also stars uh, Caitlin Olsen. And and you may remember her from uh, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Yeah. Uh, she's she's a great comedic actress, I have to tell you. Uh, just really terrific. Um, uh, Ernie Hudson. Uh, yes. I haven't seen him in a while. He's in this. Oh, you saw him in uh, Ghostbusters? Yeah, well, I saw him in Ghostbusters uh, last year. But, uh, you know, still, I, I don't see him as much. Oh, and yeah. Okay. He's a terrific actor, yes. you know? Yes. So, uh, and this is, by the way, a Bobby uh, Farrelly movie. Right. Uh, so, uh, I have to tell you. It had all of the right ingredients, uh, and you are gonna laugh uh, your tail off. Um, <laughs> the these uh, uh, the team of intellectually disabled individuals is hilarious. 
Oh, yeah. you know, there's there, there's a couple of uh, actors with Down syndrome. Uh, there's uh, several that have other disability, you know, uh, intellectual disabilities. And, and I have to tell you, they're all fantastic. All That's of them. awesome. And they're hilarious. And uh, I would just encourage people to see this movie either, e- either in the theaters or when it comes on to a streamer. But but go see this movie. It's really, really fantastic. Would you have ever pegged Woody Harrelson to have the career that he's had when you saw him in Cheers like 40 years ago? Um, no, and I think a lot of people doubted he ever would. But you know what? He's a very diverse actor. You know, he could he could play some evil characters. Oh, and play you know, some great and, characters. And, you know? and, and psycho characters and stuff. But here he really plays a, a really good person who whose arc changes through the movie. You know, his personality changes. Uh, and, uh, it's just a heartwarming film. I have to tell you, I laughed so much in this movie. Awesome. Um, and, and just enjoyed watching it. Uh, so I, and I was glad I saw it in the theater. Well, that's great. I, 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 you, it is so funny how many films he's been in that have gone on to be tremendous successes. Oh yeah. And, absolutely. And I know as of late, you know, because he hosted SNL that people have been talking about him a lot and he's just true to himself and I I I dig it, you know. Yeah. He's just he's just great. Plus, you know, what a body of work. I just can't believe he's come yeah. so far. Anyway. And by the way, Kate, Caitlin Olsen, who's who co-stars, I, she's terrific. Right. She's on. I love her in everything she's in. She is funny as can be. She's a great, great timing with her, you know? Oh, great yeah. Comedic timing. Yeah, she's absolutely. Really terrific. Yeah. I also watched Chris Rock Selective Outrage. Mm, me too. <laughs> and, and I have to tell you, I've never heard so many F-bombs. And so many N words packed into an hour comedy special. Yes, but did you expect anything? Did you expect anything less from Chris? Well, you know, I I have to tell you, it was becoming fatiguing at some point. <laughs> you know, but I thought I thought the special opened really strongly. Yes, and I thought it ended really strongly. It was a bit flat in the middle for me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I'm 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 just telling you how I felt about it. Um, I enjoyed it thoroughly and I was glad to see him and he, he was funny as could be about, um, uh, you know, talking about the whole Will Smith slap business, mm-hmm. you know, and, yeah. um, he was just hilarious I, uh, yeah. as you would expect. Yeah. I've, I saw it as well. If I can chime in and yeah. uh, I thought it was just, you know, classic Chris rock. I, he didn't pull any of his punches. He told the stories that he needed to tell. And he's one of those comedians that he doesn't just do a Netflix special or like an HBO special or whatever the case is. And then it takes him, you know, maybe five years, six years to do another one. No, he has been pretty prolific. He's been dropping these like every every year. Yeah, and I think he. I think he did a three a, a three special deal with Netflix. Yeah, which is, I, I think which he's got great. two more that are going to come up. Well, so uh, I I thought look, I thought it was really well done. Uh, the selective outrage. 
man, he touched on some some stuff that is so spot on. Yes. That we were all thinking about, you know, I mean, the selective outrage where, you know, one person, uh, you know, one celebrity can do something and they're canceled and another celebrity can do something and they're, they got to pass the Hollywood double just, standard. Just, yeah. The double standard, man. It's unbelievable. Yeah. So, um, uh, you know, again, a lot of salty language and a lot of topics that, oh, yeah. uh, you know, are, are, are going to make people blush, but, uh, really funny. I mean, it was a lot of laugh out loud moments during that. Well, it reminds me of a time before, you know, before all this happened. Right. I mean, this is comedians are always mirrors or should be mirrors of culture and gives us an opportunity to escape and laugh for a good hour and a half. Yep. And, you know, it may not all the material may hit with everybody, but at least they're doing their job. I think he he continues to be Chris Rock and uh, yeah. And so really terrific. So, yeah. yep. so that was, I, I, I would give that a thumbs up. Uh, mm. I mean, I, I feel like, you know, if, if you like uh, that kind of humor and you want to laugh your tail off for an hour, uh, check it out on Netflix. Yeah. I also watched Luther, the fallen son. Okay. As in S U N. Yeah. Uh, and that was a movie on Netflix starring Idris Elba. Yes. And I love Idris Elba. Same. I've talked about him in the past. You know, I have to tell you, Al John, this if you haven't watched the Luther series that he did with BBC, mm -hmm. you should check that out. OK, um, and you can find it on one of the streaming services. Uh, Idris Elba, Elba plays uh, a um, uh, DCI uh, detective criminal investigator. Yes, I think. Is that what it stands for? Yeah, yeah. That's what it stands for. With this, they made a uh, two-hour movie that is, I'll give you the synopsis. A serial killer uh, terrorizes London while disgraced detective John Luther sits behind bar bars. Haunted by his failure to capture the cyber psychopath who now taunts him, Luther decides to break out of prison to finish the job by any means necessary. And, uh, you know, it, it, obviously Idris Elba is the star. He's John Luther uh, and uh, Andy Circus uh, yes. uh, is is the um, the psychopath, uh, the psychopath killer. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it, he's terrific. Uh, and, you know, there's just a, a really great cast of, of, of folks, uh, including uh, Dermot Crowley, uh, who plays DSU uh, Martin. Um, uh, what does he play? Martin uh, Schenk. Uh, yeah, Martin Schenk. Uh, anyway, it, it, it's it's a really well done two hour movie based on the series, and you don't have to have known the series to watch the movie. The movie's good. a standalone. That's good to know. You know, yeah. Uh, the movie's a standalone. You can watch it without having watched the series, but having watched the series, which I really enjoyed. Um, I, I really like this movie a lot. Uh, I think it was really well done. Uh, and it was sort of an edge of your seat kind of thing, mm -hmm. uh, when you're watching it. Hello. And then I caught up on Mandalorian, you know, another episode dropped. I watched that. I'm enjoying it. I think I've watched all the episodes that have dropped so far on the last of us uh -huh. on Netflix, which again, Pedro Pascal. Yeah. In both Mandalorian and The Last of Us. Really terrific. He's the man. Enjoying that. Yep. 
I also watched several episodes of Daisy Jones and the Six on uh, Netflix. Oh, okay. Yeah. I think that's on Netflix. Yeah, I think so, too. Yeah, it is on Netflix. Uh, That was uh, really, really good. You know, it's it's kind of like a documentary. You know, it's done in a documentary style, you know, where they're actually showing, you know, the 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 band forming. Uh, and it's taking place in the mid seventies and, you know, they periodically are cutting to band members who are like years later talking about what happened and what went wrong and things like that. Uh, really well done. Uh, we, we're really enjoying this. It stars, uh, uh, Elvis Presley's, uh, granddaughter. Yes. Yes, I, and by the way, Dave, you know I downloaded that. Riley Keo, I think it yes. is Riley Keo. I think so. Yes. Yeah. And and for the record, I, I downloaded the uh, soundtrack this week, and it's good. It's great, man. Yeah. It's really and by the great. way, the band's playing a lot of Gibson guitars. Uh, yeah. Just, just it, what I mentioned. Nice, yeah, it's a nice, nice placement. <laughs> nice placement. Way to go, team. Love you guys. There you go. Thanks. And then finally, I watched uh, one episode of Rain Dogs, which is a new series on HBO Max. Okay. And uh, it's funny and sad and gritty and uh, just very British. Very British. Okay. Yeah. I, like I love, I love the British shows. I know you just Anyways, can't get enough. Uh, that, that was it for me. I, I just, I, I, I did consume a lot this past week. You did, but that's good. I appreciate it. And I know our, our listeners like it when we talk about what we've been watching. Um, yeah. I too have been catching up on Mandalorian and I, I will say that the, the Mandalorian is now firing on all cylinders because mm-hmm. here we are. And the pair, I mean, the parallels between you know the hero's journey and uh, the the reluctant hero trying to find their place in the world now with the two characters of Bo-Katan and and Mandalorian um, you know with Grogu just going down and basically getting rebaptized into their you know their dead planet was just yeah. amazing the music is amazing the cinematography is great like the story is great in driving the narrative forward it's going to come to a head and i cannot wait to check that out with a nice um I, they basically told you everything they were going to do in the very beginning and they fell fell through and did it uh, or they they followed through and did it and yeah. that's what i love about that it's great storytelling and I can't believe we've come to the point where we have amazing Star Wars and amazing Star Trek, Dave. Yeah, look at that. Picard yeah. this week blew my flipping mind. This is probably the purest form of Star Trek that warmed my heart to the point where I almost had tears on uh, at the very end of the episode because it was that episodic feeling of you had hope and despair and character development. And at the very end, the big payoff, and it really had so many callbacks to the TNG era. As a fan, I just about fell out of my chair. I was like, this is the best Star Trek I've seen since Star Trek left TV. Awesome. It's really you good. Know, I, I've got it on my list to watch, and I'm going to jump on it at some point. It's Maybe really I'm good. just waiting for more episodes to drop so yeah. I can binge it. Yeah, go, hey, go for it. 
That's um, what I did with uh, Star Trek uh, Strange New Worlds. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I binge watched that. There you go. There you go. It's and, and that's a great series, too. I mean, I think that they're starting to come around and come about. So that's that's amazing. Okay. So I also saw Cocaine Bear <laughs> this week. It's insane, Dave. You're absolutely right. It's so t- good, it's bad. Yeah, I told Kristen, I said, okay. She's like, it's so um, bad. I, I, excuse me, I said, so good, it's bad. Yeah. It's so bad, it's good. So bad, it's good. Yeah, she's <laughs> like, uh, you know, what, what, um, let's just watch Cocaine Bear. And I said, okay, sure, let's watch Cocaine Bear. Why not? And then <laughs> I said, Dave, Dave recommends it. It's, it's, it's good. And then she's like, what is Carrie Russell doing in this garbage? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, I mean, just look at the whole cast. I mean, it's a great cast. It is a great cast. I mean, Aiden Onrich, uh, Onrich is in it. Uh, Carrie Russell, uh, Ray Liotta in his last role, right? Which is sad. It, it I, is I, sad. Wish, I wish he, I wish he was in a better movie for his last role. Well, you know, at least it went to number one, and that's exactly what I told I Kristen. <laughs> you know, and then you have Margot Martindale, which is hilarious. She's hilarious, and the kids are amazing in this as well. Yeah, but yeah. I, I will say, uh, it's oddball. It's it's unique and funny and irreverent. So if you're into like the most ridiculous thing ever, Cocaine Bears for you. I mean, um, it's a fun ride. Yeah, it really is. I mean, it's, I'd wait to stream it. I'd wait to stream it, and you actually yeah. can. You've got um, you do that. Uh, we saw it on Amazon because you have the early um, early adopter thing, whatever okay. in theaters thing. Um, but something we didn't uh, early adopt was Scream Six, so we so went out and saw that. Oh yeah, okay. And uh, it's great. It's great. Uh, as a big fan of Kevin Williamson and Scream um, and the Scream franchise, as it were, uh, they basically broke it. Uh, they broke it down. You know, every time they have a character breaking down the film, the rules of film. And for a franchise, uh, you know, she, she breaks it down for everybody. It's like, this is a franchise now. You know, it's not just sequel after sequel. This is a franchise. So all the rules go out the door. You know, this, this, and this has to happen. And this, this, this has to happen. And everybody's on, you know, there are no rules. You guys, you know, they killed off everybody. Tony Stark, Luke Skywalker, you're in a big tentpole franchise. It doesn't matter. You're going to die. <laughs> you know? Hey, you know, you know something? <laughs> Obviously, the audience is loving it because it's a franchise high at the box office it this is. past weekend. It won the weekend, and uh, it was the biggest opening for any of the Scream movies. And um, uh, it's gotten very good reviews. Yeah, the, the the stakes are made clear at the very beginning. The characters are further developed, and there is a nice twist at the end. So it does it does what it set out to do. So, uh, except they're not in Woodsboro anymore, gang, not in the fictional town of little Woodsboro. They're in New York city. So, uh, there's a lot of different uh, references going on there. The horror villains are referenced. And once again, much like Pedro Pascal this year, Jenny Ortega is also amazing in this film. And we'll talk about her a little bit later. And then you also have, uh, Yasmin Savoy Brown in there as well. And I mentioned her because, um, you know, she's also having a great year this year as well. Um, great actress. And then, of course, you see Courtney Cox come back as well and Melissa Barra. So uh, a lot I, of cast I love the fact that turns. Courtney Cox is a thread through the uh, through the whole franchise. One hundred percent. I think uh, I think it's great. There are callbacks. It's smart. 
I didn't feel like I didn't feel gypped. You know, sometimes you you go to a sequel and you're like, it's so less than. You know, yeah. like I felt like in Halloween. I felt Halloween was one of the biggest letdowns with the biggest buildup. So they didn't, yes. they didn't they didn't do it for me. You bring back legacy actress like Jamie Lee Curtis into the role that that basically made her career, and this is how you send her out with a whimper, right? Yeah. And then here, you know, it's not the case. I think uh, I think they did what they needed to do. So a seven out of ten for me on that. Awesome. awesome. So, um, gang, what are you watching? Let us know. Send us those emails. We'll make it part of our uh, review and. Uh, I can't wait until next week to see what's going on with that. Skull Rock Podcast, ripped from the headlines. It's Skull Rock Podcast headline news. All right, Dave. You sent me this, and I I basically had to kick this off because I think this is borderline absurd. Disney totally cuts, absurd. Disney cuts zippity-doo-dah. From Song of the South and a Peter Pantoon replaces it, one would think, okay, that maybe there's a different reason for this being cut. For example, a show sequence gets cut because a float doesn't work properly, or maybe they've re-choreographed certain things. But no, no, um, they replaced it, apparently, because anything from Song of the South is slowly being removed from the parks. And that includes zippity doo the song that has been part of their now twice a day magic happens parade. And I love this song. I've loved this song. My mom used to sing me right. this song and it's a seminal moment in song of the South with James yeah. basket yeah. in the anime, you know, live action animation sequence. Yes. You know? Yes. And, uh, and, and I, I, I think this is ridiculous. I absolutely think this is ridiculous. I think most People think this is ridiculous. So whoever's making these choices, they're doing it based on a very small group of uh, overly sensitive people. This is what they're doing by removing any vestiges of Song of the South is they're erasing the black actors who were involved in that movie. And award-winning songwriters, by the way. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they, they're, er- they're erasing these people. They're erasing James Basket. They're erasing yes. Johnny Lee yep. and the others, you know, who, who contributed so greatly to this film. It, it's absolutely, I, I think it's a travesty. I think it's, uh, it's BS. That, that's my feeling on it. You know, that is why it's important for these stories to be told and for context to be added. Yep. Um, to the overall experience. Yes. And, and by the way, talk- but, yeah, I, I, I'm sorry. I'll yeah, go ahead. Just say by by the way, this is, some of the people that are making this decision, they've never watched the movie. <laughs> no, I mean, some of the people who are claiming outrage have never watched the film. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, it's just BS. Yeah. So Disneyland officials confirmed that a lyric from the song was removed from the parade soundtrack, but declined to comment any further. And because it's controversial and they, they don't want to have their heads handed to them. So say nothing about it. Just remove it. 
you know, but it's it, it's ridiculous. It's it's completely ridiculous. And they are literally canceling black actors by doing this. Yeah. There's a way to talk about the reconstruction era and there's it's it's important in a, in the history of our country to 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 have a discussion about it but you can't erase history and it's important to have context over these things and honestly like i said it's a great song and it's a shame it really is a shame but you know it, i just i just think it's just when does it stop when yeah, I know. I, 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 honestly, I'm waiting for a campaign to change the name of the White House. Oh, 100 percent. You know, I, I, I want somebody to come along You know, out here in Los Angeles. They changed the name of homeless to the unhoused. Oh, of course. You know, are we going to change the White House to the neutral colored house? No, yeah, no, it's going to be the, the president's residence. House. You know, I, I mean, it's just, it's such stupidity. Yeah. It's craziness. It is. It, it, you know what? There's, there's other things to, uh, <laughs> that should inhabit <laughs> I mean, your time. It's a take lot up your more, time. more important things to put your energy into people. Oh, you know, the, this kind of kind of stuff is just complete BS. Yeah. Anyway, you know, and, yeah. and you get, you get some tiny little group of people who are going to, cry about something and try and make an issue out of something again this goes back to selective outrage selective you know? selective outrage there you go that's, that's what this is selective chris rock outrage. hit it right on the head that's right that's right well here we are uh to the next controversial topic you know um what do you think of the animators guild seeking to organize nearly 80 production coordinators managers and production super supervisors with this union drive with I A T S E. I don't know the, uh, uh, is that the, the proper, uh, the proper, uh, acronym for that Dave, the, uh, the IATSE. IATSE. Okay. That's, that's what we call it. The IATSE. Yes. Right? So IATSE. So, so for our listeners, the IATSE is the international association of theatrical stage employees. Uh, and that is the overarching, uh, union and underneath that umbrella are all the guilds, right? So then you have the animation guild, the director's guild, the writers, right? It, you know, all of them belong to the IATSE, but the, uh, animation guild local A39, which I was a member of, by the way, for uh, like 25 years, mm -hmm. All right, right. They're they're now wanting to uh, unionize the production workers, but there's a fundamental problem here. You can't. You, you you're trying to fold in production managers into the union. That's that production managers are managing the artists that are in the guild. Right. That seems crazy. It doesn't seem. Right. It, it, it it it's not. It doesn't work for me. Right. Because what you're doing is you're trying to unionize management. Yeah, it makes yeah. no sense. Well, it makes sense when you consider what a union would do for management when they get uh, <laughs> their problems with production or problems with yeah, layoffs. Right. Yeah. It's nuts. Yeah. It's the, totally nuts. I guess the managers I mean, should have their own guild. Right, Dave? Yeah. And, <laughs> and by, by the way, the fact that there's like 80 production people production coordinators and production managers yeah. at, at, uh, at Disney animation, therein lies the problem. Right. 
You know, if they if they're trying to figure out why, you know, Strange World made a face plant at the box office, well, you're they're, they're over managing the division. That's that's where you start. Uh-huh. So the, this is ridiculous. You know, the the company ha, uh, is against it uh, uh, clearly, and they're going to take it to the National uh, uh, Labor Relations Board. Yeah. So you know they'll they'll sort it out. But but this is this is just more craziness. I think. Well, yes. It's a crazy world we live in right yeah. now where everybody's trying to protect their own assets, correct? Mm-hmm. So in that case, uh, Disney's trying to protect their own assets too by reducing costs on films and focusing on quality and not quantity, Dave. And uh, they've just kind of pulled back the slate of Marvel and Star Wars, uh, everything that's going on with Disney and doing a little little shuffle, shuffle here. But um, what do you think about this whole refocus, if you will, is it just, well, I, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, is it just because when Iger had stepped out, they placed, he placed so much emphasis on streaming that it was about churning out content, especially during the pandemic era. But now that the pandemic has kind of taken a corner, um, maybe they just need to slow down. And, and of course the economy is coming back a little bit. So, I mean, I mean, what's what's going on here? Well, I, I'm going to talk a little bit about both of the stories that we have here. We have Iger ways on uh, in on Marvel and and uh, Star Wars, and also Hulu. Right. The, the, these stories all came out of uh, Iger's appearance at Morgan Stanley's annual Technology, Media, and Telecom conference. Uh-huh. Uh So Morgan Stanley. Um, the investment brokerage house um when they're not suing themselves right they're they're, <laughs> they're they're basically you know they do this annual technology media and teleconference uh telecom uh conference uh once a year so Iger was there he talks about uh quality over quantity so you know we've talked about this on uh on the Skull Rock podcast uh over the last couple of years that the streaming channels it's it's an arms race everybody was throwing you know hundreds of millions of dollars uh to create content to attract subscribers yeah. right um, so what, what Iger is basically saying is they're going to cut back on costs associated with producing television and films, and the company is going to focus on quality over quantity. And that's what they should be doing. They should just be turning out quality shows that people really want to watch, uh, and not trying to, uh, you know, put a fire hose of content onto the streaming service. And by the way, Disney has one of the best libraries in the entire industry, you know, (laughs) they should put a lot more of the classic stuff onto the streaming channel. 100%. Uh, That's what I think. Yeah. Uh, But also at this conference, he talked about Disney plus pricing, uh, which means that, you know, he, he said generally uh, they're bullish on streaming uh, as a, a great consumer proposition, uh, and the company was off in terms of pricing strategy and will adjust accordingly, which means that the Disney plus subscriber, uh, costs are going to go up in the future. Uh, and then he talked about too many Marvel sequel uh, sequels. Uh, they're going to start to, uh, spread some of that out. They're going to stop doing so many sequels. They're still going to do the Avengers stuff. He talked about that. 
but uh, they're going to, you know, just do, you know, some of the other characters. They might do one or two films and that's it. You know, I think is Guardians of the Galaxy. The, the last chapter is ending that franchise, right? That's right. It's coming out here in a little bit. Yeah, I think it comes out in a couple of weeks. Looking yeah. forward to that. Yeah, um, t- he talked about uh, the imperative uh, to be very careful with Star Wars, uh, and 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 you know he acknowledged the disappointing box office performance of Solo. So um, you know uh, it, it it's making the company reflect a little bit on what they're doing. So they're going to, you know, again focus on. Uh, quality over quantity uh, with Star Wars. Um, he talked about ESPN's ratings and the push in the streaming and a very bright, bullish future for ESPN. Uh, he even touched on uh, third party licensing, uh, saying that, uh, you know, Disney could once again create content for its rivals. Uh, so, yeah. but it's not going to be anything Marvel, Star Wars, Disney, or Pixar related. Sure. You know, that's going to be exclusive to Disney Plus. He also, and I think a lot of our listeners are going to love hearing this, theme park pricing was too aggressive. Uh, He conceded that Disney aired on its theme park pricing. uh, And uh, so they're they're going to make some adjustments there. And also, I think they pulled back on the uh, parking costs. Yep. You know, because they were very aggressive on parking. Oh yeah, they were nickel and diming. I saw the death all over. Pa- uh, yeah. you know, uh, pass. I mean, you know, a, a family of four going to the park. You know, you you're not only spending like five five hundred or five hundred fifty dollars for the tickets to go into the park. You get there and it's like forty dollars to park. It's ridiculous. Yeah, it's crazy. So yeah, and then uh, and then he also commented on his own future, and he said that at the very top of his to do list is to uh, get a replacement. Yeah. You know, to the the succession plan is pretty much the top of his list. He said, and he said his goal was quote My goal is essentially to leave here in two years with a trajectory that is very optimistic and positive, and I think that that's fantastic. Um, and, uh, absolutely agree. Uh, and he's the guy that's going to do it. Yes. I, I have faith that Bob will, will do it. Um, you know, you have to go through these missteps in order to learn and grow from them. I feel, you know, you don't know how much is too much until you really say, okay, yeah, uh, maybe all these Star Wars films and all these Marvel projects are leading to some fatigue because I will tell you, as a huge fan of those franchises as well as the Disney stuff, it's uh, it's hard to keep up with. It is, mm-hmm. you know, in a, you know, someone with busy life and children and, and even without children, it was a lot of content to try to, to consume. Um, when you, when you look, take a look I, at it. Al, John, I have to tell you, I agree with you on this. And, and I will say with Star Wars, got mandalorian and andor yeah you know those are two great shows focus on those you yeah. know and then on the movie front do one every couple of years yeah you know i mean make it make it an event every couple of years and do a really great movie that's right that's right yeah you got to make the you know make the 10 pole franchises exactly what they're meant to be and make sure you do what paramount plus is doing with having terry metallis write and direct these uh these shows for star trek um 
You know, it, it's not hard. John Favreau, I think, and, and Dave Filoni are doing a magnificent job, and Kevin Feige is doing a magnificent job. Just, uh, yeah, make sure you keep the eye on the prize here, folks, and, and don't yeah, wear out don't, the people. Don't do what you did with, uh, you know, who wants to be a millionaire, you know, putting it on five nights a week and killing it, <laughs> you know? It's like, you know, let let it, let it let the audience, you know, leave the audience wanting more and looking forward to the next one. Whenever that is, 100%. and then fine. And by the way, finally, uh, uh, he did talk about Hulu. Yeah, and he said they're studying the business, you know. And then Disney owns two thirds of Hulu, and they're being very, very careful. He said that quote: "The environment is very, very tricky right now, and uh, before we make any big decisions about our level of investment and our commitment to that business." We want to understand where it could go. Um, I hope they keep Hulu. Yeah. Uh, if they if they don't keep Hulu, then you have to question why they bought the Fox Library. Yeah. You really do. Yeah. Because if you're not going to have general content, all of a sudden, you know, because they're talking about we we may not want to have all this general content. Well. Why'd you why'd you buy the Fox library? I think they have to find out what once again, go back to the tenets and the pillars of what makes Disney Disney and what underneath the Disney umbrella is is regarded as this is part this is on brand, right? But this is on brand. Whatever other stuff that is not necessarily on brand but is part of the umbrella you need to house it and package it in the, a, a proper way. And whether it's a tile that Dave has said in weeks past on, on Disney plus that's gated or whatever the case is, it just needs to, they need to figure that out uh, and, and they need to figure out where the company can and should grow to try to get some of the other fringe elements. You know, Disney, Disney, it, their core business is, <clears throat> is a tree trunk and, in or, and they have all of us hardcore fans. What they need to do is grow to the benefit of their shareholders and how do you grow their business? You have to really find out what your core business and who you're reaching and find out where Hulu is going to be. They have to be careful with that um, in order to help grow their business. I think it can be very, a great tool for them. And I, I, I don't have no problem subscribing to both Hulu and Disney plus because there's, there's value to both provided that Hulu continues to provide value for people. Yeah. And, and by the way, I agree with you, Al John, they they need to protect the Disney brand. Yep. But just having Disney Plus with family entertainment is that enough? That's right. Is it enough? Because I, I, I don't and know. I don't think it is because families ha who have children like you do yep. and like I used to. Yep. I mean, my kids are grown now, but yep. uh, you want to be able to sit down and watch some really wholesome content with your family, yep. with your children, but. When the kids go to bed, don't you want to go and watch something that's a little bit more adult oriented? Yeah. yeah. That's what I want to do. Exactly. I'm sitting down watching SVU or I'm sitting walking yeah. dead, watching Walking Dead. And that's that's what my wife and I love to watch, you know, and you make content for other providers. That's all fine and good. 
right? But I mean, I want that content too, wherever I'm I'm putting my money, you know. And and, and, and by the way, you know, let's let's keep talking about this theme of selective outrage, right? Right. You know, on Disney Plus, they have a disclaimer card at the head of the 1940 Pinocchio. Yeah. Right. That says no smoking. You know, like, you know, oh, smoking's yeah. bad. There's smoking in this, you know, we whatever their disclaimer the is about smoking. the cigar smoking on Pleasure Island with Pinocchio, right? Yes. Well, you know, why did you then put the Beatles Let It Be a documentary yeah. on Disney Plus? 100%. They're, uh, they're all smoking through those sessions. Oh, yeah. And drinking. Right. Yep. And, and and it's sort of like that whole Let It Be docu series should have gone on to Hulu. It, you definitely make that point. You're you're absolutely right. I mean, yeah. You know, so so that that to me <clears throat> is an example of why they should keep Hulu, and I hope I hope they do keep Hulu. I hope they buy the rest of it from Universal and um, uh, own it a hundred percent. And make that their general content platform, their adult-oriented platform, and keep the Disney Plus, keep the Disney Plus channel, you know, the streaming channel, family content. Don't start mixing stuff into it like this Beatles documentary, it's which, surprising. by the way, I loved it. I oh loved yeah, we love it. Beatles die, but it. I don't think it should have been on Disney Plus. What I don't understand, Dave, is why don't they? After all this time, why haven't they put the Fox Fox tile on Hulu? Or on 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 Disney Plus. I you know what I have no idea. Even for the family entertainment films, why why haven't they just done that? I just don't get it. I you know what I I I don't know. You know again you know there there's so many cross country uh, uh, cross currents going on in that company. Uh, it, it it's you know it's difficult. I I think instead of doing a Fox tile, I think you just keep Hulu. And maybe put the Fox tile under Hulu. Sure. You do that. You too. can do that. There's a bunch of, there's a bunch of different things for yeah. sure. Yeah. They can do all right, anyway. man. That's good stuff. Uh, I tell you, um, another interesting thing is the fact that the Cape Crusader moves to Amazon with a two season order. Uh, you would have thought that this was going to be an HBO max thing because of the DC universe and HBO max, but no, I guess they licensed it out. Dave, this is the, uh, Series from J.J. Abrams, uh, Matt Reeves, and Bruce Tim, Batman, the well, Cape Crusader. Yeah, but you know something? What, what's going on here is that this show, which was developed for HBO Max, was cut because with the HBO Max Discovery merger, there has been serious cost cutting going on. Uh, and they have, um, they have just been chopping, uh, stuff like there's no tomorrow and killing it like Catwoman, the movie, right? They're, yeah. they're just killing these things that had large costs to them. And fortunately the Cape Crusader was picked up, uh, by Amazon for two seasons, so they're going to put it on uh, Amazon Prime, awesome. which I think is fantastic. You yeah. know, I mean, you know, another show at, at HBO Max, Snowpiercer. Yeah. Very expensive show, but a great show. Uh, they killed the final season of that after it was shot. So they're shopping that around. Hopefully somebody's going to pick that up. 
Yeah. Because I, I'd love to see another season of Snowpiercer. Um, when this merger goes down, do you think J.J. Abrams' uh, content um, contract uh, is going to continue forward, or are they obli- uh, uh, obligated to kind of see, see that through? Because he wrote that, you know, uh, Warner Brothers, uh, HBO Max, uh, wrote out a huge check for him to create content for the streaming service. Yeah, I, I have no idea what's going to happen there. I really don't. But, oh. uh, you know, David Zaslow, uh, who's the CEO of um, uh, Warner Discovery uh, after the merger, uh, you know, they're looking to uh, make massive cost savings. Yeah. Uh, I mean, to the tune of, I think, $5 billion. So they're chopping lots of stuff and they're making very tough decisions. Uh, and a lot of the stuff that's being targeted is uh, really expensive content. Yeah. Uh, and that sort of is J.J. Abrams area. A lot of expensive content. A lot of expensive content. Yeah. But but I'm I'm thrilled that Amazon picked this up and I'm hopeful that, um, you know, Amazon and other streaming services will pick up some of the other shows that were being cut just because of costs. Yeah. Well, the Hollywood it girl uh, is Ginny Ortega. Or Jenna Ortega, and we we talked about her because I watched, um, you know, uh, Scream Scream. Six, and uh, both you and I have also saw the uh, the uh, Wednesday series, Adam's Family spinoff, if you will, on Netflix. But now uh, Tim Burton is looking to maybe get Jenna Ortega back into the world of the Burton verse with Beetlejuice Two, according to multiple sources on the Hollywood Reporter. I sent you my original thought on this because uh, it looks like Jenna Ortega is kind of uh, being typecast in this uh, brooding, gothic, Winona Ryder-esque role uh, in Beetlejuice 2. Do you think she's being typecast or do you think it's just the fact that Tim Burton loves working with the same people time and time again? I don't think she's being typecast. And, you know, I read an article. she, She loved working with Tim on Wednesday. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I think this is I think this is really terrific. Um, I also had heard that uh, Michael Keaton uh, is circling to come back as Beetlejuice. As he should. Uh, <laughs> yeah, as he should. And I don't think you could do a Beetlejuice 2 without him. I don't think so. Why do it then? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Why do it? Uh, but Tim wants to direct this. Good. But there's no official word yet. No, no. As to whether this is actually going to be a go, I hope it is. They've been talking about Beetlejuice two now for years. So yeah, the original one it. came out in eighty eight. Yeah, can you believe it? The, the long yeah. stretches between these sequels—it's crazy, right? I know it's not crazy. So I, I hope they do it. I, I think it'd be fantastic if you, you bring because they were talking about bringing Winona Ryder back possibly. Uh, Jenna Ortega is going to play Winona Ryder's daughter. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, and you bring back uh Michael Keaton as Beetlejuice. I, I think you could do something really fun with this. Surely. Uh and I think Jenna Ortega would do a great job. Yeah, I I'm looking forward to it. One hundred percent. So now into the uh the not so happy part of the show that well, we bring in. You know week. something? I was thinking about this this week, uh, Al John. We okay. really have to get a bumper for celebrating the dead. I know. You know, I know. I, I think it. it should be happy, like dun 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 dun. <laughs> We're celebrating the dead, oh my you God. know, or Dave. something. So uh, morbid. Because we really do celebrate the people that pass away. Oh, this is true. This is true. Um, okay, so I'll have to figure out some kind of bumper for it. 
So we'll get that. I got two bumpers to make for this week. That's my, that's my goal in life. So this week, you know, is there any more classic rock song more iconic than free bird? Dave, I I ask you, there is. And you know what? I love that song. Everybody loves that song. I love the song and, and you know, it's become, um, you know, a bit of a tongue in cheek because you'll hear people scream it out at concerts. Oh, <laughs> like, doesn't matter the band, yeah. you, you know, there'll be that, that sort of moment of almost silence or, or a pause and you'll hear somebody scream at the top of their lungs. Free bird! Oh, yeah. you know, oh yeah. And, and it doesn't matter who the artist is. If I had a dollar for every time I was on stage and I heard someone say free bird and all you can do is just kind of smile and shake your head and give us a thumbs up because you know, you know, that's just what the people do. But uh, in sad news, at the age of 71, the founding member of a uh, uh, original the member la- of the, Leonard one of the Skinner, la- he's the, the last, last original member. That's right. The last original member, Gary Rosington, who uh, we've worked with in my company for decades. Yeah. He's been dealing with health issues over the past few years. Uh, Gary Rosington passes away. Um, no cause of death was given. He's been dealing with health issues over the past few years, but uh, heart ailments, et cetera. But the official statement from the band's uh, Twitter had said Leonard Skinner, quote, it is with our deepest sympathy and sadness that we have to advise that we lost our brother, friend, and family member, songwriter, and guitarist Gary Rosington today. Gary is now with his Skinner brothers and family in heaven, playing it pretty like he always does. You know, you got to remember, uh, you know, at the peak of their success, um, part of the band was killed in that plane crash. It was such a tragedy. Um, yeah, that I that mean, it happened. was really terrible. But but Gary Rosenton actually survived that plane crash. He had like a uh, broken leg and broken arm. Yeah, it's 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 absolutely you know? it's it's actual miracle that he survived. But yeah. uh, you know, yeah, that was October twentieth, nineteen seventy seven. The crash happened and killing three band members: Van Zant, the original guitarist, guitarist Steve Gaines, and backup singer Cassie Gaines. Um, and both pilots had passed away as well. I mean, that's just an incredible blow for a band, but they weathered the storm and they resurrected, they resurrected, yeah. you know, like the Phoenix, like the free bird. And then they go, bam, they're, they're back in action. And of course now they were actually, you know, touring and doing things. And, uh, I've got a friend that's playing in Leonard Skinner <laughs> right now. And, uh, you know, there you go. I mean, you know, it is the end of an era. But uh, what an icon um, uh, for music, guitar players everywhere, Gary Rosington at the age of 71. Yeah, uh, you know, really a shame, you know, and they were at their peak because they had put out that album uh, in 1973 with the, uh, you know, it really, it's almost like a 10 10 minute uh, song. Oh, yeah. Freebird, you know, which was became their signature song. And uh, and it was four years later when that plane crash uh, happened. And, uh, you know, it's it, it, it's just uh, un, unreal, you know, uh, that, yeah. that they continued for decades after that with with the surviving members who slowly, you know, passed away. Yeah. By the way, I, I do have a funny story to tell you. I, oh, okay. I was debating whether to share this, but I might okay. as well. OK, uh, we're unfiltered here. Uh, but I, I a friend of mine who who has a law firm, uh, you know, takes his firm 
there's like 18 or 20 people every year to a concert. Yeah. Right. And so one year he took the whole firm to uh, see Willie Nelson at the Hollywood Bowl. Sure. And he invited me to come along. Okay. And so I said, okay, you know, we all had, we had this big dinner uh, beforehand. And then we, we, at the Hollywood bowl, there was a private area he had rented and it was all catered. We had this dinner and then we go into the Hollywood bowl and, you know, Willie comes out on stage and he starts playing and then, you know, he takes sort of a, a you know, a song ends before he plays the, other, he's talking to the audience and he's like, ah, I don't know what I should play next. And I don't know what was in me. Maybe it was a couple glasses of wine, but I belted out Freebird at the top of my lungs. And <laughs> Willie smiled and he goes, Yeah, I don't know. I don't think we're going to do that one. <laughs> <laughs> he's, a, he's a pro, Dave. He's a pro. <laughs> there you go. But, you know? but uh, you know, the whole audience laughed. It was hilarious. Oh, yeah. Well, and and come on, you know, he opened he opened that up. He opened the door for that. He, he, he knew, did. He really he knew, did. You know, he knew. I you mean, don't you don't you just know. you don't just say that at, at a you know with, with a musician of his caliber and just open the door and you literally took it and just ran with it and, yeah, and it was, as it you was should. A, it was a slow pitch and I I slugged it out of the Exa- park. Exactly. You know? Yeah. He gave you a softball. <laughs> he gave you a soft one. So yeah. anyway, yeah, that's a good one. So as we move on, that's a good story, Dave. Thanks for sharing that. Um, <laughs> Robert Blake, the star of In Cold Blood and Beretta, dies at ni- uh, 89. And uh, the semi award winning actor faced real life drama when he's accused of murdering his wife. Um, this, I, you know, when you sent me this, I'm like, oh, wow, Robert Blake. You talk about, mm. you talk about someone that is completely, um, uh, you know, controversial if you will and, and troubled i mean he was just a troubled individual yes. you know yeah and, and he had been acting since he was four years old you know he was in the our gang series oh yeah yeah absolutely absolutely you know back in the 30s i yeah. mean you know i mean this guy had a lengthy career that just ended terribly you know and uh you know the accusations that he shot his wife and the murder trial, he was acquitted, and then he, you know, was sued in the civil uh, case by the uh, his his former wife's family. I mean, it's just it, it, it's a tragedy, it really is. The whole thing's a tragedy. Very sad. It is. It's just very um, what an interesting life he led for sure. But you know, once again, uh, so much work. You know, he's, he, you know, you can see him everywhere in Hollywood. So, you know, once again, just being part of our gang and, and so many different films and TV shows over the years. But uh, he's definitely a face that you would recognize for sure. Now, uh, Burt Gordon, the director of cult and cheap sci-fi classics, dies at 100. Dave, he hit the three-digit mark. Uh, you know, it, it's so amazing. And, and he, he had this career where he made these hilarious, uh, you know, like B pictures, you know, yeah. earth versus the spider village of the giants, <sighs> the amazing colossal man. I mean, it's, you know, the Cyclops, uh, you know, he was making films, you know, in, uh, you know, these B movie films uh, from the 50s all the way through, you know, to the late uh, 70s. Yeah. You know, uh, and it's just uh, what an amazing, amazing career, you know, and he he was always casting 
uh, you know, um, actors that were, you know, uh, some of them were sort of on the downside of their careers, but, you know, he had act actresses like, you know, uh, Zsa Zsa Gabor, uh, uh, you know, Joan uh, Collins and, uh, you know, yeah. Joan Collins, Peter Graves, yeah. uh, Basil Rathbone, uh, Bo Bridges, Ron Howard, yeah. I mean, you know, it's it, it was just really uh, an incredible body of work that he's left behind. And I mean, the fact that he reached 100 is pretty amazing. <laughs> so, you know, Godspeed to Burt Gordon. For sure. All right. And then we also have yet another uh, great actor. And uh, as my computer is uh, trying to uh, to call up. All of these, my computer just locked up, Dave. So here we are, uh, Bert I. Gordon, of course, and now with um, Fiddler on the Roof, uh, Topol Tavy. Did I say that correct? Well, he he played Tavy the Milkman. Oh, the Tavy the Milkman, the but, uh, but yeah. it's 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 Chaim Topol. Chaim Topol. Okay, there you go. I'm sorry, my computer is yeah. totally dies at 87. Israeli actor uh, who played uh, uh, Tavi the milkman. Tavi the milkman on the roof. I on should... stages all around the world. Yeah, that's true. And and uh, if I were a rich man, yes, absolutely. If yes, I were a rich man. If I were a rich and, man, uh, and, and not only did he play it on stages, um, uh, you know, he got Oscar nominated, uh, in the Norman Jewish in 1971 film adaption. Uh, and he has died at 87, there you go. uh, after a long illness, you know, uh, but, uh, uh really uh, one of the iconic performances. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. I remember uh, singing this when I was in high school, um, being a, uh, back when I was, uh, more of a classically trained singer, Dave, back in the day. Nice. All right. And then um, we also have David Letterman's longtime film coordinator passing away at the age of 67, Rick Schenkman. And, yeah, uh, and, and you know something? He's not a household name, but uh, I, I really wanted to give him a shout out because he was one of these guys behind the scenes, uh, behind the scenes, who was an incredible uh, avid film collector who really had acquired obscure footage from decades and decades. Um, and he repurposed a lot of this material for commercials and TV shows and the <clears throat> like. And, you know, he, he joined the Letterman show in 1982, a month after the show debuted on NBC. And uh, the writers called on Jackman uh, often, uh, you know, because they wanted, you know, uh, you know, various clips and whatnot. It says here, uh, one of the writers wrote on his blog, uh, if 20 minutes before tape time, the writer suddenly came up with a bit that required a film of a monkey washing a cat, Shecky knew where to find it. Isn't it crazy? You know? Isn't it crazy that, you know, you need people with that encyclopedic knowledge of, yeah. of clips of where to find films, you know, much like how, you know, it's uh, people like DJs have sometimes uh, encyclopedic memory of song length and just the most trivial stuff that they just kind of ramble, you know, just, yeah. just uh, off that. And then he's one of those type of people that do it for film media. 
Yeah. And, and what's sad is that when you lose somebody like this and, and, you know, the fact that he died at 67, that's young, very, young. you know, uh, it, it's really, I think a loss, uh, it's a loss to, you know, the, the film community, the, the, uh, people who are, uh, fans and aficionados and historians of, uh, of film, uh, this is a loss. Uh, you know, fortunately, his vast collection of material that he had collected over decades and decades, he had donated to the Library of Congress. So the material is still going to be around and awesome. accessible through the Library of Congress. But uh, just a, a, it was a sad note. And, uh, you know, one of the good guys uh, in the uh, film community, uh, you know, the film fan community, especially. Oh, there you go. Rest in peace, everybody. Yeah. Well, once again, a, a lengthy segment, but a great noteworthy one uh, nonetheless. And now we need to sit back and relax because Willie Ito is back in part two of his interview. So sit back and relax and enjoy. Let's do it. Skull Rock Podcast. Interview time. Well, Al John, here we are. We're back again for part two of our interview with the legendary animator, Willie Ito. Uh, and Willie, welcome back to the Skull Rock Podcast. Well, I am very happy to be back at Skull Rock uh, Podcast. And unfortunately, uh, I didn't even have time to change my clothes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I got to tell you, you know, uh, we we left off in our, our last conversation. We, we left off. Uh, you were kind of finishing up at Warner Brothers. And you got a call to go over to Hanna-Barbera because they had sold the Jetsons, which went into the time slot where the Beanie and Cecil show was that you had worked on at Warner Brothers. Right. Yeah. Uh -huh. And and so let, let's pick up there. I mean, what was that like going on to the Jetsons? Well, it was quite exciting because, see, Iwo Takamoto was my mentor. At Disney on Lady and the Tramp, yeah. He, uh, he was responsible in training me to such a degree that when I went to the other studios, that training really paid off. Mm -hmm. And so I always felt that, uh, uh, you know, Ewo had a reputation of spending hours correcting someone's uh, drawing. And I always felt... Uh, like maybe he uh, sort of pinpointed me uh, to be so fastidious. But as it turns out, that was his way, you know. And so some people hated it and resented it. Uh, but, you know, when you think about it, that kind of a training is something that, God, if I, if I did spend four years at Sherrard's Art Institute, I wouldn't have gotten that kind of a fastidious training that our industry required at that time, you know. Yeah. Anyway, when I got a call after uh, Clampett was unable to get a renewal uh, on the Beanie and Cecil show, I showed up that Monday morning, and lo and behold, there's Ivo Takamoto. And I, at at Hanna-Barbera. At Hanna-Barbera. Hanna and yeah. I thought he would never leave uh, Disney. But, uh, you know, Evo has such an ability that he got pipecasted. All of the nine old men says, well, I got 
uh, Aurora or Cinderella or or Lady, uh, characters that needed that kind of a fastidious treatment with the eyelashes and all. And Evil could do that, make make these uh, female characters just look so beautiful, you know. And so, so he kind of felt that uh, not having the opportunity to sit down and uh, become an animator at Disney with screen credits and all, he, he just kind of felt maybe it's time to move on. And, and so in Emo's history, he only worked at two studios, Disney and Hanna-Barbera. Mm. Whereas most of us, you know, worked around different studios sure. here and there. So a- anyhow, um, when I started that Monday morning, walked into the uh, layout department and I saw Evo there, I thought, oh my gosh, you know, this this is really something that Evo left and taking this chance of working on television animation. Was he happy to see you? Uh well, uh, he he was, but yet he, you know he's so stoic that he doesn't go. Ah. You, you couldn't oh, you couldn't quite tell. I couldn't quite tell <laughs> because years later I says, "Evil, if if I was hiring me based on my portfolio, I would have never hired me." And so, how come you you know? got me hired at a place like Disney. And he says, well, I wasn't looking at what you had there, but he was looking at what I had, the potential. And I thought, wow, I never, I never really thought of it that way, you know? And so uh, while we worked together, he was one hell of a teacher because he was, I think one of the uh, top, uh, character designer you know he designed over 75 percent of the characters of Anna barbera straight characters as well as the real cartoony you know animal characters yeah whatever you know but it was a great reunion because there was another cohort of mine that i worked with at warner brothers his name was jerry eisenberg and uh, when I left Warner's, Jerry replaced me as Ken Harris's assistant, and uh, so seeing them all under the uh, Hanna Barbera roof was really gratifying. Like, wow, this is a home weekend! And so, you know, I I spent the following fourteen years at Hanna Barbera, and of course, the first uh, show that uh, I was. Uh, assigned to happen to be the Jetsons. Which is amazing. I mean, what, what did you think of the Jetsons? Well, you know, uh, uh, first of all, you know, it, it, it was, we thought that this is very innovative and creative, but then see, we're on the heel of the success of the Flintstones. Right. And so it, it's like, well, you know, you, you take, you, you take a theme, family situation comedy, basically uh, based on the honeymooners. And so the success of the Flintstone naturally inspired 
another family situation uh, show in the future with the Jetsons. And so uh, Hanna-Barbera was somewhat of a formula studio. We, we would take a good formula and then we keep expanding on it, you know, yeah. like Scooby-Doo was such a success. We followed it up with a bunch of other similar shows with teenage uh, uh, kids and all that, you know. So, yeah. uh, you know, it was pretty much. But, but was the Jetsons, did you consider the Jetsons to be sort of adult entertainment? Was it was it an evening show when it came on the air or was it? I, I, I'm trying to, I guess, determine when it, when it became a Saturday morning thing as opposed to an evening thing. Yeah, well, of course, as you know, the Flintstone was an evening show. Right. Yeah. We had Winston Cigarette as sponsors, and it was on at uh, uh, early evening prime time where a lot of uh, working uh, grown-ups would go to the local bars and sit around and watch the Flintstones, you know. And, and, and the Flintstones were kind of patterned after like Abbott and Costello or uh, the Honeymooners, you know, well, uh, uh, Ralph Cramden and Ed Norton. Exactly. It was, it was yeah. that kind of a, uh, a setup, right? It was, yeah. And so the thinking behind the Jetsons is, well, let's expand on that family situation by just doing, uh, you know, uh, uh, a future family with all the innovative uh, future things, you know. And so we had to sit down and come up with a bunch of bunch of gimmicks. Some of them uh, sort of, uh, uh, you know, became a truth, you know, and, uh, uh, but uh, it, it was fun because like the Flintstones, you could invent things. Right. And, you know, there's no one that would say, hey, no, no. And then I I always thought that was fascinating about the Jetsons or even, you know, Gene Roddenberry's Star Trek in the 1960s was was that there was all of these inventive things that that the characters interacted with that now decades later have actually come true. Right. You know, video video phones and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. Uh, And I I remember uh, when I saw you at CTN. And I also saw Jerry Eisenberg, you know, and I and I talked to him briefly about the Jetsons and and what what did you feel? What was that like when you were doing an episode where you guys were pulling stuff out of the air? Yeah, yeah. And Jerry was a great researcher. He would uh, on lunchtime go into Hollywood to uh, the uh, uh, the collectors' bookstores and use book places along Hollywood Boulevard yeah. and research these uh, old magazines about the future. And uh, so like sci- science fiction, comic books and, uh, yeah. and science fiction, science magazines, yeah. you know, popular science at the time in the, right. in the 1950s and 60s was a big magazine. And during the time that I was incarcerated, uh, you know, we, we did see a lot of movies and one of the, uh, uh, series, they were, they were serials, the, uh, Flash Gordon and yeah. Roger Tom Mix and those kinds of things. Right. Yeah. And the, uh, uh, things like Flash Gordon got, you know, I, I kind of remember, 
a lot of the gimmicky things. So yeah. when you're sitting down to design the uh, shows like the Jetsons, you know, you kind of reach back into your own memory and, and come up with uh, gadgets. Yeah. Uh, it, 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 it was fun. And then, of course, the writers before us had to write uh, some of these gimmicks and um, and make little rough notes that we would kind of uh, uh, you know go by, but uh, we you know it it, it was uh, uh, inventiveness between both the writing department and mm. us. It was collaborative, very collaborative. Yeah. And here's the other thing: back then during the Jetson period, our writers were animation writers. People like Mike Maltese and Warren Foster's and Tony Benedict and all that, you know. Uh, and so they had a lot of visual imaginations. However, as we got busier and busier, uh, the networks would come to Joe Barbera and says, "Hey, you know, we we've got a lot of uh, live action writers out there that." Uh, uh, would love to write uh, scripts. So these live action writers would write scripts, but uh, we had to completely form the uh, story editing department that had to read these scripts and then transform it into storyboards. Yeah. Yes. Whereas before, you got people like Dan Gordon and then that they wrote as they did little, little storyboards and that was their script, you know, then the second. So, so they were, they were essentially doing a sort of a storyboarded script. Yeah. 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 Right. And, and then when you got these TV writers, they had actually had to create a, uh, a, a story editing department essentially yeah. where they would take the script and basically it would go through that department and get translated into a storyboard. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, which is, which is pretty amazing, you know, and, and, and I, I, I can't help, but uh, think that when you're working on these kinds of shows, you're having a ball, aren't you? Well, it was, it was a lot of fun, but it was a lot of work. Sure. And when you're faced with doing a, half, a complete half-hour show, 22 minutes of uh, new material, and you've got the, the network schedule. Yeah. Not like doing a feature and you say, well, you know, we could extend it another six months or something. Boom. You had to hit these uh, weekly schedules. And then, of course, uh, Mr. Hanna was on top of the budgets. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then here's the other thing. Joe Barbera was so prolific that the guys would get together for lunch at one of the favorite Italian restaurants in Hollywood. And, of course, with cartoon writers, you know, martinis was part of the game. Yeah. So uh, they would be talking gags and all that and then make little uh, sketches on cocktail napkins and all. And Joe would say, hey, let's see that. Uh, then he put it in his pocket. And then he'll take the red eye to New York. And then Monday morning, he would meet with networks or sponsors or whatever. And then he'd pull out these uh, martini-soaked uh, napkins with the 
funny sketches. And off the top of his head, he would improvise and start telling a story. And then the network, because he was such a good storyteller, they said, that's a show. Okay, let's go with it. And then, and then he would get on the phone uh, Sunday night and say, hey, Bill, we we got to staff up another a group of people because <laughs> I just sold another half-hour show. <laughs> <laughs> so, and then Hong Kong Fui was born after that, right? <laughs> oh, so, so let, let me ask you this question, uh, uh, Willie. Yeah. Um, back in those days when you were working on the Jetsons, were you guys working year round or was it still a seasonal business where you'd have a couple of months off every year? Well, it, it was seasonal, but we were lucky because uh, those of us that were sort of team, the, the creative bunch, we would now get really busy because now we had to do presentation. Right. And, um, and work on these uh, big uh, boards and, and uh, color, you know, when we. So, so you're doing, you're, you're, you're actually doing production of the shows. And yeah. then when, when the shows are done, you're, you're switching over to do presentations of new shows that they're trying to sell. Yeah. Wow. So you yeah. were working year round. Year round. One, once in a while, you know, if a show is like renewed and we didn't have to uh, bust our, you know, what to uh, come up with new show ideas, yeah. uh, I, I will get a break. And I used to go down to a film fair and work for them uh, with uh, Sam Cornell, uh, yeah. you know, commercials, you know, yeah, so yeah. a nice little break. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I knew Sam Cornell. He was a nice yeah. man. Great man. Yeah. Yeah, I, I I enjoyed. I I did a bunch of uh, uh, Keebler commercials yes, with him yes. over the years. Yeah, he he was like the Keebler guy, uh, Keebler elves. So uh, you you're working on the Jetsons, and then you're doing you go on to the Flintstones. No, Flintstones came first. Oh, the Flintstones. Well, yeah. okay. So I I'm looking at your uh, IMB IMBD. Yeah. Okay. Got it. All right, it, it, because the Flintstones ran from sixty-two to sixty-six, mm-hmm. and the Jetsons came in in sixty-three. So you were working on the Flintstones, and then went on to the Jetsons. Right, right, yeah. And and did you continue working on both? Uh, I mean, you you were working on multiple shows, right, at the yeah, same time. Yeah. When when the uh, Jetsons season uh, completed, of course we you know kept moving ahead. Yeah, and. Uh, and then, of course, another one of those family type show uh, that I worked on was uh, Roman Holiday. And Roman Holiday was basically the Flintstone and Jetsons in the Roman era. <laughs> <laughs> Chariots and, uh, you know, the whole bit. Yeah. And then were you were you guys recycling scripts when you were doing these kinds of shows where you were sort of saying, let's do this show, but we'll rewrite it for this, you know, for, for Rome? Well, a lot of times we'll be working on that. I says, God, this seems familiar. And I'm thinking, <laughs> yeah, it seems like I read this script before or whatever, and it's been recycled, you know, but uh because I, I'm sure the writers just says, hey, you know, remember, we didn't sell that one episode uh, of the Flintstones, but uh, uh, let's rewrite it as uh, Roman days. And, you know, that's that's how it went, you know. And uh, so 
<laughs> and, and you know the the Flintstones was really a groundbreaking show when it came yeah. out. You know, and, and, and by the way, I have seen because you mentioned earlier that Winston Cigarettes was one of the sponsors. They actually did an animated uh, Winston Cigarette commercial with yeah. with the with, with Fred and Barney. Yeah. They're smoking Winston cigarettes. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it was uh, quite something. And and then, of course, as we kept expanding, see, um, uh, of fellow named Freddie Silverman, who was uh, in charge of a C CBS uh, network, uh, 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 well, children's programming. Right. Uh, he He's one of the guys that came up with Scooby-Doo. Okay. And he also came up with that Scooby-Dooby-Doo, you know, the Frank Sinatra thing. Yeah. And uh, Scooby-Doo became one of the iconic it's of the Hanna-Barbera library, you know. Right, well, they're still making them. They're still making them, exactly. Yeah. And uh, so, see, we had Filmation as our competitor. Right. However, Filmation never created their own show. They always did shows based on something that was already established, like yeah. Archie. And um, the He-Man and, yeah, yeah. you know, those kinds of things. Yeah. Didn't they do Prince Valiant? Uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah. You know, so, but, but when you look at Filmation and you look at Hanna-Barbera, Hanna-Barbera is more cartoony yeah. and, and Filmation is more of that sort of realistic uh, humanoid animation, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Now, during the um, one period there, when, uh, we came up with a show like Johnny Quest. Uh, we suddenly realized we have a problem here because most of the animators working on on our uh, shows were rubber uh, uh, rubber hose animators, right? From Terry Tunes and from uh, Fleischer's, yeah, and all that, and then. Uh, you know, when we got so busy, you know, a lot of these guys came out of retirement and Bill Hanna sent for them to come out to the West Coast or even sent work back east for them to work on back then. Yeah. So you had these uh, shows like Johnny Quest that had to be anatomically correct. Right. And so when they were animated, you know, here's... Uh, Here's Johnny Quest, you know, walking like Popeye or something. And it was like, <laughs> hey, this, this, this isn't right. So that's when we decided we're going to have to raid the comic book artists. And then so we were able to get people like uh, uh, Alex Toth and Doug Wildey and, and, you know, people that actually worked in comic books that new anatomy and poses. Yeah. So now we were able to take on shows like Super Friends and, uh, and of course, uh, Johnny Quest. And uh, so that started that whole era of semi-realistic animation. And so that gave Hanna-Barbera another horizon to reach for, you know. And, right. Yeah. So it was it was fantastic times, and when you think about it, 
you know, when I when I sit here and I look at all the shows that you and I I rattled some off earlier, but you know, Wacky Racers and the Banana Splits Adventure Hour, the Perils of Penelope Pit Stop, uh, I mean Motor Mouse and Auto Cat and Josie and the Pussycats, and uh, I mean it just goes on and on. Yogi's Gang. Uh, out of all of these shows that you worked on, is there any one that kind of floats up to the top saying like, I really enjoyed that? I know this is, you know, I, I have to say, oftentimes being in animation, people say, what was the favorite movie that you worked on? And it's like saying, who's your favorite kid? Yeah. You know, you can't really pick right, one, right, right. but, but oftentimes some filter up to the top where you say, well, you know, that particular picture was so great because I got to work with all these different people, or there was some situation that just made it more memorable. Is yeah, there anything well, like that for you? Yeah. Um, Hong Kong Fui was a, a, is a show that, you know, I was uh, uh, close to as far as uh, helping create it and everything. And so we, we got a memo from the network saying that uh, from here on, if you have any ethnic characters, we want actors of that, you know, uh, background background to do the voices. We don't want an Amos and Andy type of situation. So we did a show called uh, the Harlem Globetrotters. Yeah. And so one day uh, I, my cubicle was right by studio a. And so whenever the red light was blinking, uh, the actors would have to wait until the light stopped, but then they'll be peering over my cubicle see what I was working on. And so one day I was working away and I could feel eyes on, on me. <laughs> so then I turn around and here's these great big tall uh, black uh, guys all looking over saying, hey, what, what are you working on? Was, that, was it Metal Lark Lemon or any of those guys? So they, were, they were basically, uh, uh, you know, uh, black actors. with Okay. Movie. Yeah. And so... Then, then we created a, a show called the Amazing Chan Clan, and so they put out a call uh, to uh, uh, the agents uh, saying, "Send us all your Asian actors and all that." So he, here, the same scenario. I'm sitting there working, and then I feel these eyes behind me again, and I so I turn around. Now, the all I could see is, you know, just a part of the head looking over and saying, hey, what do you want to go? And, and I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, they're all Asians, <laughs> you know. And so that that was an interesting period that um, now Hanna-Barbera had to be uh, politically correct. Well, you know, it's really interesting because you talk about Hong Kong Fui. I mean, that's 1974, 1975. That, that's middle 70s. So even back then, they were starting to become conscious of making sure that we, you know, that they want to use uh, actors uh, of, uh, you know, ethnic actors yeah. um, uh, that fit the characters that are in the show. Yeah. Here, uh, speaking of the uh, Hong Kong Fui situation, I, I I had just finished creating it, and uh, now we were doing a lot of the preliminary preliminary work, model sheets, and all that. Uh, and uh, 
So one night, there was a uh, there was a nice restaurant on Sunset Boulevard, just as, uh, by the uh, where it curves at the thing called the Imperial Gardens, mm-hmm. and it was a Japanese restaurant, uh, uh, and so they had a cocktail lounge there where a lot of the Asian actors would kind of hang out there. So one night after work, me, Jerry Eisenberg, and Don Jorich, we we went up there to eat some sushi, and then we went retired at the bar. And I see Pat Morita at the bar. Mm-hmm. I said, hey, Pat, Pat, come on over. And I says, hey, um, did you ever think about doing a voiceover for animation? And she says, well, you know, my agent never really sent me for any kind of voiceover. And I thought, well, you know, I just came up, uh, created a character called Hong Kong Free, which I would like you to audition for. And he says, well, gee, that sounds good. Call me Monday morning, and then uh, you could come in and we'll set up an audition and all that. So Pat says, oh, okay, good deal. So Monday morning comes in, no Pat. All day Monday, no pad, no nothing Tuesday. So Wednesday, I'm back at the Imperial Gardens, and Pat's there. And I said, hey, Pat, what happened? I was expecting to hear from you. He says, yeah, my, my agent called and sent me over to uh, the studio, uh, uh, Sony or Warner's or whatever it was. And he says, so I had to go. Uh, but fortunately, I got the part. I says, yeah. Well, what what was it you went to audition for? Oh, the Karate Kid. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that that as far as using that was uh, history. Yeah, yeah. And the next week, the three of us, Don and and uh, Jerry and I, we went to the Hollywood Bowl. Now, that's not the Hollywood Bowl where they had the concerts. It was the bowling alley in Hollywood. <laughs> and in the Hollywood Bowl was a cocktail lounge. So we were sitting in there having cocktails and watching the comedian uh, doing his number. And he was funny. And so when he finished his set, we says, hey, come on over, uh, let uh, buy you a drink, you know. And so he came over and we talked and all that. And then I... Same thing. How would you like to uh, audition for a voiceover for a character, you know? And he says, hey, that sounds great. So next day, I go to uh, Joe Barbera's office, and I throw this out to him. And he says, hey, it's, it sounds good. Yeah, have him come in and, and uh, audition. So he came in. We did an audition tape, and then we ran it for Joe Barbera's that is really great. And so we got Scatman Crothers to come in <laughs> and do Hong Kong Fui, you know. So it was neither Asian or neither a dog or whatever. It was just Scatman doing his voice. And, and uh, I think that's what gave Hong Kong Fui its popularity, you might say. And, and, and how many episodes did you wind up doing? It only ran for two seasons. Yeah, I think that's all we did. So usually yeah. each episode is um, a 22. Well, the, within the 22 minutes, I can't remember if, if it was like three segments 
or one whole half hour. Right. I can't, I can't uh, remember. There are so many shows. We yeah, when they when they typically order a show like Hong Kong Fui, would it be like twenty six episodes for the season? Yeah, twenty six episodes, uh, uh, twenty two minutes. Uh, yeah. So they wound they wound up doing uh, essentially, you know, fifty two uh, Hong Kong Fuis. I'm assuming so. I uh, yeah. Of course, I never really. Kept track. Kept, he never kept track of those things. <laughs> but, yeah, you were, know, the thing is, you know, I, I've done a lot of uh, comic cons. Yeah. And I'll be on a panel discussing exactly what we were talking about. And yeah. days and all. But you have these kids that grew up with it. And then their kids grow up with it. And then with Boomerang and all that, they know these shows inside and out. Oh, I'm sure they, they. I'm sure they know the show better than you do, right? Or well, better than you, better than you remember. That's the problem. <laughs> so then they they would ask these questions at the Comic Con, and it, you know, I'm really stumped, you know. And, and so finally, I says, you know, we work on these shows. We start Monday morning. We put a fresh piece of paper on our board and say, fade in scene one. And we bust our, you know what, all week. And then finally on Friday, fade out, scene 162. Then you turn it in. And then Saturday, I'm not going to go home. Saturday, I'll wake up Saturday morning and watch a Hanna-Barbera cartoon. <laughs> right. So, You're just not going to do it. Yeah, I watch what our competitors are doing. Sure. So I don't know the shows as much as the fans do. So they they really kind of get you, you know, in a corner like, wow. Yeah, I know. I have, trust me. I think anybody who's been in the business has has had those moments. Yes. So um so you you had a 22-year run and you did all these incredible shows. We were talking about Hong Kong Fooey and uh, you did Richie Rich and the Scooby-Doo and uh, Yogi's Space Race and just it goes on and on. I mean, these are th this is the classic Hanna-Barbera catalog. Yeah. I mean, all of the, all of these shows, it's just fantastic. And what what happens towards the end of your run at Hanna-Barbera? Well, uh, one of our uh, cohorts that we were working with, his name was Takashi Masunaga, and he it, he was from Japan, and uh, he made a deal with Sanrio, the Hello Kitty company. Yeah, yeah. And so he made a deal with Sanrio to uh, produce an animated feature that Sanrio was going to finance, and then have it done here with a Japanese crew and an American crew yeah, working together. And so uh, Takashi asked me if I might be like the uh, production uh, uh, coordinator or whatever. Or production manager. Manager or whatever. Right. And, and so I was kind of responsible in hiring uh, the American staff, yeah. the Japanese uh, uh, staff came over. I don't know if you ever knew of a guy named uh, Miyasan uh, that worked in our consumer products from Japan. I think he was 
there about the time you were there in feature, you know. But uh, uh, you know, the name sounds familiar, but I'm not sure. I only knew a few people like Dave Pacheco and those folks that okay. went over into okay. consumer products. Right. Yeah. So anyway, we 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 all um, there was a bunch of us that uh, uh, resigned from Hanna Barbera, and uh, we found an office space uh, right where our Wallach's Music City used to be. And um, we took over the whole upstairs and we had a, a dual crew. Well, the Japanese crew, well, the American crew would come in like eight or nine o'clock. And then at five or six o'clock, they're, they're gone. The Japanese crew would come in like 10 o'clock and then work right into the evening and, and in most cases into the night. And so as a production coordinator, I felt that I have to be there to coordinate, yeah. I have to do a lot of uh, uh, translations and all that. And then around uh, 10 o'clock at night, they're ready to uh, call it a day, but they're hungry. So we had a Japanese restaurant right across the street on Vine Street. And so Takashi would call and said, well, we're going to be coming over. So we, uh, so they would have, uh, uh, you know, sushi or whatever waiting for us. Then we would all come over there and then we would have our dinner. And then we had a, a this was before uh, karaoke or karaoke bars. So it was like piano bars. Mm -hmm. So this uh, uh, Japanese singer would play the piano and, and play all these Japanese songs. So now my Japanese crew had to unwind and say, get the microphone and they start <laughs> singing old classic Japanese songs and all that. Well, <laughs> I'm still with him, you know, until we close up the bar. Then they're hungry. Again, Jeez. so I want to go down to Koreatown and go eat uh, some Korean food. And so, I, of course, I go down there with them. And, and then after that, you think that they would say, ah, let's, we're tired, let's go home. No, <laughs> they want to go to Mia-san's apartment that has a jacuzzi. <laughs> it's I used to get home like most uh, nights at uh, like four in the morning. I live in a, a hilly area and, and I used to drive my Austin Healy to work. And that Austin Healy is so loud that when I would come home at four in the morning, three neighborhoods would know I was just coming home. This is like all <laughs> I wonder what uh, Willie is up to because he's four and he's just getting home, you know. Well, I hope you. I hope you still have that Austin Healy. I do. It's in the garage. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> and so, consequently, by the time uh, six months before the film was completed, I resigned. I said, "I've had it. it, it it's it was it's too fun. much. It was yeah, just too much on you for my health, my whatever." Yeah. And I, I just kind of felt uh, a mental and a physical um, a burnout yeah. in animation. Sure. 
yeah. So and and this I because we it, it, the last episode we were talking with you, you kind of got ahead of yourself uh, to start talking about you got a call to you were doing some freelance and yeah. you got a call about a staff position. So let, let's talk a little bit about that because listen, I think anybody who's been in animation for any length of time understands that sense of burnout that you get, especially if you're working on a feature and you're doing 60, 70 hour weeks to try and get your portion of the film finished in time. I mean, you know, people are working six days a week or seven days a week in some instances to try and get their movies finished or their shows done by a certain deadline. So, you know, I think a lot of people in animation have experienced that sense of, you know, just being burnt out. Absolutely burnt out, yeah, and and it's just so I, you know, so now getting back to my getting into the comic strip department at that time, Lorna Parmeroy and uh, Sam Cornell was in the uh, comic strip department. Uh-huh. Lorna was joining John and going back into feature animation. Sam Cornell was leaving to go to work uh, with uh, Gus Jekyll over at Film Fair. So two people from Comic Strip was leaving. Right. So my timing, uh, procrastinating on getting the Mickey Mouse uh, uh, pages done, worked in my favor. Sure. <laughs> suddenly there was uh, two people leaving, and that's one of the reasons why I was... Uh, you know, able to get back uh, or get hired on. And so I, I, I actually never really looked back. Uh, I kept thinking to myself, well, you know, even though this is if Disney hires you or asks you back and you refuse, they'll never ask you again. But here I am back at Disney. Right. And so here's a, here's a, uh, the thing, uh, Michael Eisner and Frank Wells came aboard. Yeah. And we had this big rally in the back, back lot. Yeah. And uh, I remember it. I remember it. This would have been 1983, 84. Somewhere in that day. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Michael Eisner was a VP of uh, programming at ABC before he went to Paramount. Right. So I met Michael Eisner uh, loosely because we would have our presentation work completed, then we would display it. And then Michael Eisner and company would come in to Hanna-Barbera on Saturday to review the work we did. Joe would have us come in on a Saturday just to sit out our, our drawing board looking like we're busy working on the presentation. Well, right. it's done days ago, but, you know, he wanted to put on this show, you know. Sure. So, so it's, uh, Joe would say, yeah, this, this is our creative crew. And, you know, I kind of uh, met Michael back then. Uh, of course, he didn't remember me, but uh, nevertheless, when we had that rally at the studio back lot, one of the things he says is, uh, we're going to out Hanna-Barbera, Hanna-Barbera. <laughs> and I'm in the audience rolling my eyes. Yeah, sure, you know. And so, uh, you know, I kind of left it uh, with that feeling like, eh, 
you know, if Disney wants to start up a, a TV unit, uh, more power to them. Then uh, this fellow, Gary Kreisel, who was in charge of our uh, music department, became uh, the, I guess you might say, the head of the uh, Disney TV TV department. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, a fellow named uh, Mike Webster, who I worked with at mm -hmm. Hanna-Barbera, he's from animation, he was uh, brought in. And so he reaches out to me and says, hey, you know, I'm glad you're here, uh, uh, you, know, you know, with the starting up of the new animation department, I, I need someone that, uh, you know, uh, could work with, with us, especially because we're going to be looking for a studio uh, in Asia to yeah. work. I said, Mike, you know, I came back to Disney to get away from animation, especially Saturday morning. <laughs> so I don't think I'm interested. And then he starts to dangle these carrots in front of me. Yeah, yeah. He says, yeah, you'll be doing a lot of uh, traveling and, you know, uh, you know the, the whole number. And so I, I went to Carson Van Austin, who was my boss. At right, that. right. Car he was in charge of consumer products. Uh, yeah, he was in charge of consumer products at that time, right? Yeah. So I says, Carson, uh, Michael has uh, offered me a situation but I'm a little reluctant. So if I feel that it's not working out for me, could I come back? He says, oh, the door's always open. Okay. Then I went to Michael and I said, okay, let me uh, do this. If I could uh, have uh, three months to work and see how it works out, you know, he says, very good. Okay. Then, uh, with that agreed, I want you to do uh, a storyboard for the Wuzzles and the Gummy Bears. Right. Two-minute uh, uh, storyboards. We're going to record the track, and then we'll have uh, exposure sheets made. And then we're going to hand carry this kit to Japan. And then we're going to make a visit to Toei Animation. And then the other set, we're going to fly to... Uh, uh, Korea and um, have Stephen Han uh, of uh, the studio up there. Yeah. So, okay, sounds good. And so I fly into Tokyo and uh, I'm checking in at the Hilton, Tokyo Hilton, when this uh, American guy comes up to me and says, You're Willie Ito. I said, Yeah. He says, I represent. Uh, uh, studio uh, TMS Tokyo Movie Shinsha and so I understand you're here to audition a couple of um, Asian animation studio I said yes I am we would like to throw our hat in the ring also I said well that's not my call but Michael uh, uh, Webster left uh, 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 out of Seattle, and he's we're supposed to meet up here in the lobby within 
half an hour. So uh, I said, then maybe we could talk. Then sure enough, Michael comes in and he's at the registry. And I said, well, Michael's here. So uh, after he registered, we flag him over. He, the three of us sit down and starts talking. And, and this guy uh, uh, proposed that he, he, you know, he would like to do it at, at their expense and this and that. And so it's easy to make duplicates of the uh, soundtrack. Sure, sure. So, so next day, you know, we were able to provide TMS. And then we went over to Toei and met with Mia-san and gave him the, uh, the, the package. And then uh, we flew to Seoul, Korea and met with Stephen Han and gave him the package. Now, was everybody doing it on spec or were, yeah, so everybody was doing sort of a test on spec to say, here's the package. We want you to do these two minutes. And based on what you present to us, we're going to select one of the studios to work with us. Exactly. Okay. So about three months later, we were in the sweat box and all three samples came in and we're sitting there uh, reviewing it. And then we finally, after the three, we said, we like the middle one, the B, you know. Was this a blind testing for you guys? In other words, yeah, you were no, looking I at A, B, and C. Exactly. You didn't know who did what. And I think uh, in the audience, uh, well, Gary Kreisel was there and Michael, and, and I think Jeffrey Katzenberg came in, and, you know, there was, yeah. there was a bunch of people. And, uh, and so we finally says, yeah, it looks like B was the best. So let's see who did that. Oh, TMS, Tokyo Movie Shinsha. Oh, that's the one that uh, threw their head in the ring last minute. So anyhow, we um, we met with them, and um, you know, we they set up a studio in Coenga, right. right across the street from Hanna Barbera. Yeah, yeah. Well, the thing is. I found out later through the grapevine that they freelanced a lot of the animation to the Disney. (laughs) 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 No wonder it looks so good. (laughs) Oh my gosh. But anyway, TMS got the project and, um, uh, Tad Stones came in. Yeah, yeah. He was one of the early guys that helped to shape uh, uh, Disney TV animation. Exactly, yeah. So so seeing that it was in good hands, I went back to Carson and I says, I'm back. <laughs> he says, come on in. And so, um, so here in, um, consumer products started to grow and grow and grow. Right, yeah. And so uh, before we knew it, we had, you know, over 800 Disney stores worldwide. Yeah. Yeah. And And, and it was a beast to feed. I mean, you guys were constantly coming up with with new types of merchandise and there was constant there was a constant new licensees coming on board with their products that needed to have art for it. Yeah, because when when we premiered the uh, first store at the Glendale Galleria, mm-hmm. you know, it opened with a big fanfare that yeah. characters and uh, walking around and the balloons and the whole bit. But then the, the people coming in says, yeah, I just bought this at Disneyland uh, three weeks ago. 
and said, gee, I don't see anything new in here and the whole bit, you know. Right. So at that time, uh, Stephen Burke, who later became CEO of, uh, well, Universal and NBC and all that. Uh, yeah. yeah. But he, uh, uh, we, we worked together and I said, well, you know, I'm a collector. And so what we need is collectible merchandise exclusive to the stores. Yeah. Uh, merchandise that's, um, you know, basically you could only go and get at the Disney stores. Which and, and there'd only be so many. There'd be an addition of 500 or 750 or whatever. And so that sort of took off. And so, uh, uh, so then it became apparent that uh, we are now Disney store worldwide. Yeah. And so I guess from the front office, uh, they said, we're going to have to set up a, uh, well, I guess the best way to describe it is like a creative task force that will travel to all of our different offices in Tokyo Disneyland. Uh, we have a big office in Tokyo of uh, right. artists. And then, of course, Tokyo Disneyland. Yeah. And uh, Milan uh, had artists that did a lot of the uh, Topolino books. Sure. And... Uh, uh, lot of the merchandise for Disneyland Paris. Thing. Yeah. So they we had offices all over. So next thing, I was packing my suitcase again, and uh, and I was traveling to all of these places, like like Bangkok, Thailand, had the factory that did the uh, Disney classics. Yeah. In Pacheco was over overseas. You know? Right, right. And so I would go over there, and I, I would uh, have to go to Singapore and Hong Kong. It it was great because yeah. on the Disney time, I got to you know travel. You got to see the world. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so and that's the best way to travel, isn't it? On the Disney time. Yeah. <laughs> and so basically, uh, that's. Pretty much uh, how I ended my career, I was still with the Disney International Creative and uh, decided, well, see, unfortunately, my wife took ill. And then it got to a point where I would have to stay home a lot. And so I turned 65 and I figured that I think I'll just, uh, you know, I could freelance at home. So I... Sure. uh, officially went into retirement uh, and, and to stay home and take care of uh, my wife. And uh, But I was, uh, you know, up to my armpits uh, with freelance uh, from the same people I was working. Sure, yeah. And so that was uh, very good. And then came Hello Maggie, my uh, uh, book. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. And so I, uh, Shig Yabu, who wrote the book uh, uh, of his own experience while he was incarcerated at Heart Mountain, Wyoming, uh, wrote a book about uh, a magpie that he adopted. Now, when you say Wyoming, so there, now I know there was an internment camp outside in Southern California. 
Yeah. Right. There was one in Utah. That's where you were, right? Where I was. Yeah. And there was one in Wyoming. I wasn't aware. How many, how many internment camps were there? Ten. There were ten. Wow. Ten internment camps spread out throughout the Midwest. And um, there were two in California. The one uh, right up here near the Sierras called Manzanar. Uh-huh. And then at the northern tip of uh, California, uh, called to uh not topaz uh tule lake right i was in topaz shig was in heart mountain wyoming and my wife was in poston arizona and you know so we we had them in colorado arizona uh hmm. you know california and sort of spread out I, I have to mention this because I just saw this on the news and you're probably more familiar with it, but somebody had compiled a book that has all of the names right. and that's all it is. When you open this book, it's just a list in alphabetical order of every single Japanese American who was in an internment camp during that period of World War II. Me and my family were in that book. Did you put a dot next to your name? I'm going to go there Friday. Because it's it's down in Little Tokyo, isn't it? Yeah. It's on display at the Japanese American Museum, isn't it? Correct. Yeah. 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 And I think it's a limited uh, stay there. So when... I, I guess you have a kind of a little uh, colored stamp that you. Put. Yeah, it's a color. It's a colored stamp that uh, when you find your name, you stamp. It's a blue dot that goes under your name, and that just signifies that you, you know, are, as a survivor, yeah. have you know put put your stamp on your name essentially. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I'm I'm still going to have to do that and. Uh, so uh, that was it was pretty amazing. I'd like to get down there to see that. I mean, I just I just thought, you know, it's, it's essentially a book with one hundred and twenty thousand names in alphabetical order. Yeah. Right. Phew, right. It's unbelievable. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, but, you know, it's uh, 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 kind of interesting when you think the different history, you know, of of us Japanese Americans and what we sort of experience and then ended up in the industry. Yeah. Now, uh, Mindy, Mindy Johnson has a uh, beautiful presentation that we do together. Yeah. 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 It's about the Asians in animation from before the war and then after the war, you know, and, um, uh, did so, you? Yeah, I, I really have to ask you this question, if you don't mind. Did yeah. you ever experience any prejudice because you were Japanese American when you were working in the industry? You know, actually, that's one of the things that you know I I, I sort of anticipated that it's going to be a, a rough goal, but then you know, animation is very colorblind. Yeah, you know, it's. It's your portfolio. That, it, it's it's uh, about the talent. It's about yeah. the work, right? I mean, that that's really what it is. So I never, never had any sort of, uh, uh, you know, animosity of any sorts and all that. Uh, and um, so now, now Iwo Takamoto's story is kind of interesting because he was incarcerated 
in Manzanar, which is our camp in California. Yeah. But he got sent to camp prime time of his life, education-wise. He was unable to go to college because, boom, he was uh, incarcerated. Then, of course, the family is now broke. So yeah. there's no way that they could even send him to college after the war. So uh, as the war was coming close to an end, he, he was kind of thinking to himself, now what the hell am I going to do? You know, I have no, no degree, no education, whatever. Fortunately, there was a couple of people, a couple of young guys in camp that actually worked in animation before the war. So they looked at, you know, uh, Iwo's drawing abilities. Says, hey, you know what you should do? Get yourself a couple of 10-cent notebooks and just fill it up with drawings, and which he did. So he spent a weekend filling two notebooks full of drawings and, and whatever. And then when he came home from camp, he submitted it to Disney, and they looked at it at Disney and said, this kid's good. Let's hire him. Yeah. And, you know, total disregard as to what his ethnicity is or all that. They just saw these little notebooks. And, yeah. just, and so rest is history. You know, Evil became one of the uh, pop cleanup uh, key assistants. And every one of the nine old men wanted Evil to work on their stuff. So consequently, he got typecasted. If, right. If you want a real good uh, assistant, a cleanup work, take it to Evil. So Evil said, well, gee, I want to animate. I want to get, uh, you know, my career uh, really established here. But all the years that he was at Disney, he never got uh, any screen credit. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that, that's always been a problem. And, and it's a problem historically when we look back now, because you're wanting to try and figure out well who worked on this and who worked on that. And when you look at some, like, like the early Disney cartoons in the thirties, there's no screen credits. There's, yeah. there's Walt's name and that's about it, you know? So, and it wasn't until after the, the, the union, the, the uh, screen cartoonist guild was formed that right. they started to give credit, but they were still very stingy on the credit and the lower level artists never got their names on those credits. You know, it's amazing. Um, you know, Willie, we're bumping up against time. Okay. I want to, I want to come, I want to uh, do a part three with you. And, sure. and, and I, I have to tell you, there's so much more for us to talk about because even though you, you know, you we're leaving off where you're retired, you still got now 25 more years here that, you know, close to 25 more years of all these other things that you're doing. So I want to delve into those in part three. Okay. So, so we look forward to having you back again okay. uh, on the Skull Rock podcast. And it's so great to have been able to talk with you. Your attention, please. <laughs> now loading on track number one. For a trip around Walt Disney's Magic Kingdom. Skull Rock Podcast. All aboard. Your Main Street to the world of Disney. All right. Number two down, Willie Ito, once again, telling us some amazing stories. And uh, it's great that he can, you know, share these stories with everybody. You know, it really is. And, uh, you know, such a nice guy. 
Uh, I can't say uh, enough about him. Uh, he He's just a terrific individual, and I love talking with him and hearing the stories. Uh, and, you know, he didn't have it as easy as, you know, others have, uh, but he's persevered, uh, you know, and uh, he's very philosophical and uh, doesn't have the ill will that you would expect from somebody who is incarcerated in an internment camp, uh, during the war years, uh, in the 1940s. And, uh, you know, I have to say, um, he, he's just a great individual for us to have on the show and, uh, really talk about, uh, a magnificent career. 100%. I'm so happy that's he's still, on the that's show. That's still going on, by the way. Yeah, I know, right? You guys busy. We're going to talk about that in part three. Oh, my goodness. It's crazy, but it's awesome. At the same time, Willie Ito is crazy enough to come back on the show to kind of wrap <laughs> up some things and tell us about his projects and uh, what a delight Willie Ito is. What a legend. And uh, looking forward to having him back on the show next week on Skull Rock Podcast. Hey, by, hey, by the way, if you love our show, and we know you do because you, you sat through the two of us yapping about entertainment. You need to go ahead and subscribe and leave us those five-star reviews. Write a little something. It all helps the algorithm, certainly. certainly helps the algorithm. And tell your friends about it because we'd love more people to come into the tribe, if you will, and listen to these great stories every single week. You know, Dave is a great archivist and storyteller and is by his own right. He'll tell you about all that stuff in a second. But uh, I, I, I love the fact that you can go back in the history of this show for the past three years and listen to amazing in-depth stories from some of these great filmmakers. I think it's a a really cool thing to be involved in. So please like, share, and subscribe. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Be sure to check out uh, our podcast archive there at SkullRockPodcast.com. Be sure to send us those emails, if you will, as well. Right, uh, Dave at SkullRockPodcast.com or Aljon, A-L-J-O-N, at SkullRockPodcast.com. Follow us on LinkedIn as well. Dave would appreciate uh, that like and follow. And uh, you can follow me as well. Uh, I'm on the Dining at Disney podcast. We produce two shows every single week and on Instagram at Al John Go. Dave, you've got the final word. And by the way, I was on uh, Dining at Disney yes, uh, a couple of weeks ago. That's right. Talking about some of my favorite uh, eateries down at the parks. Yes. Uh, but hey, uh, as always, uh, check out davidbosser.com. A lot of free articles. There's also some free stuff. There's a free stuff tab if you'd like to get uh, some bookmarks or coasters or even a book plate signed uh, for one of the books that I've put out uh, over the years. Uh, If you're interested in some of my books, you you can also find them uh, on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, or you can go directly to theoldmillpress.com and you can get some signed editions there. Uh, And with that, uh, go out and have a fantastic week. Enjoy yourselves. Be positive. We're coming into spring. We've already uh, uh, sprung forward. I hope everybody did. You know, maybe you're looking at your clock right now going, oh, my God, I forgot to do that. Uh, But uh, we'll see you back here uh, next Monday right here on the Skull Rock Podcast. Podcast.